Take your Bibles now then and turn to Ephesians chapter 1 as we continue our work way through this um, great book of the Bible and uh, this great look at uh, some of the things that God has done for us and that God continues to do for us. And uh, as we consider this uh, prayer at the end of chapter 1, I want to read the whole thing again. And I found out this morning that um, we won't get through everything I had planned this morning, but that's okay because there's always next week. Uh, and maybe between now and then the Lord will come back and then um, that would be better. Um, but uh, if you have your Bibles, um, Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, thanks now that we can turn to your word and we have been able to worship you in a number of ways already this morning. And I pray that we would continue to funnel and focus our thoughts upon you and, uh, and your word. As we pray so often, week after week, we come to things that are of eternal weight. We come to a word that is uh, eternal word. And we come to a word that we so often um, read and can't understand or don't make sense of, and we need your help. And so again, today, it's no exception. This morning, it's no exception. We need your help. So, Spirit of God, would you um, open the eyes of our hearts that we might understand some of these great truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been uh, thinking this past couple of weeks as I've been spending time in this prayer how much God really knew what I need in my life. And uh, this is one of these examples, again, that although the Apostle Paul wrote uh, the book of Ephesians, it was the Spirit of God that guided and directed his thoughts and his pen so that the words that he wrote were actually the words of God. And that's why we say that the Bible is breathed out by God or it's inspired by God. And one of the things that I really need to know is I need to know God better. And I find that in all of the issues that I face in life, um, they seem to keep boiling back to questions that I have of God. Uh, what's he like? Why, you know, tell me about your justice. Tell me about your righteousness. Help me see more of your mercy, your grace. Help me make sense of your plan for my life. Help me to fit this into a picture that makes sense to me. And so I more and more realize that I really need to know God. And I thank uh, I thank, am so thankful that I have the Bible that helps me come to understand him more and his spirit that lives in me. And so Paul was right on the mark for me when he prayed that um, I might have a spirit of revelation and wisdom so I might know him more. Uh, but then as he kept on uh, going in this prayer, I think more and more that he, he seems to know more what's in my heart. And I was reflecting on these three more petitions that he gives that uh, we might know something of the hope to which we have been called and 
And uh, we'll chat about that in a couple of minutes. And I, I need that so much in my life. I get so distracted and so overcome by, by things that, um, that come into my life that I lose sight of the hope to which I've been called. I get so wrapped up in um, trying to secure an inheritance here on earth and trying to uh, secure a way of life here on earth that I forget what God has called me to and in the inheritance that he has promised to me that I will receive when Christ comes again or when I go to be with him. And then there are those times which I am so struck by my own weakness and my own fears that I need to realize in a fresh new way what is the power that is at work in my life to live in a way that glorifies God. So Paul knew what he was saying as he wrote down, um, uh, as the Spirit moved him, this prayer to the Ephesians. And uh, so he begins, and I want to pick up again, uh, last week we really spent our time looking at this one particular thought of that it's so important that we come to know God. Uh, But then Paul in verse 18, he begins by uh, asking uh, that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. And uh, as I was reflecting on this phrase, the thing that, uh, that struck me was this, that not everything is as plain as the nose on your face. And that's true in so many areas of life. Uh, I was thinking of this uh, just in relation to this past week in the office. office. Um, we had been given a plaque, and uh, it was a great plaque, and I've read the plaque um, numerous times and was very appreciative of the words that were written on it. It was given to us as a congregation, and we'll, we'll put it up somewhere so that you'll all be able to have a time uh, to look at it. Uh, but uh, at tea time uh, one day last week, um, Dan comes up to me and he, he gives me this plaque and he says, um, read it. He said it more nicely than that. Um, uh, but he says, well, you have a look at this. So uh, I picked it up and I, I read through this plaque again and uh, handed him back and said, yeah, it's, it's great. I, I really appreciate that. And he stuck it back at me. He says, no, read it again. And I, in brackets, you could put dummy. But um, he didn't say that. But read it again. So this time I thought, okay, there's some reason I should be reading this again. So very thoughtfully and very carefully, I, in my own mind, went over every word that I was reading and got to the end of it and said, yeah, this is really nice. Gave it back, pushed it back in my face, read it again. So I put my finger on it and I went through each word of it and I I read them, not out loud, but I just moved along the way and I got to a certain point and he says, no, no, go back. And so I went back and sure enough, there was one word that was spelt wrong. Instead of saying of, it said or. And I read that thing probably eight times, and Dan had told me to read it with eyes to be looking, and I still couldn't figure it out. And so sometimes uh, things are, 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 are um, uh, not everything is as plain as the nose on your face. And when we come to this, I think this is what Paul is beginning to get at in the Christian life is there are things that we wrestle with and things that we struggle with and things that we need that aren't as obvious as we think they are. And so he prays that the eyes of our heart would be opened. Um, Our eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Now, the word that he uses here is cardia. And obviously, it's a word that's uh, connected to a lot of words that today reference the heart. But Paul is not speaking of the physical heart. Um, Neither is he speaking uh, of our emotions primarily. I think our world today has overtaken this word heart, and whenever we hear heart, we just pour into it phrases and things that really point to emotions. And that's not what the Bible means either when it moves away from the physical organ that beats in our body to talk about the heart. It's not primarily referring to our organs, or to our, it's not primarily referring to, to, to our emotions. Um, and when there's, a, there's an interesting uh, uh, 
when you look through the Bible at heart, it refers to our intellect, it refers to our understanding, it refers to our mind, and yes, it refers to our emotions, but our heart is the core of who we are. When you strip away our flesh and bones, when you strip away everything that's external, what is inside of us, what is who we are, is our heart. And so that's what Paul is referring to when he says, may the eyes of your heart um, be enlightened. Uh, There's a good illustration of this in, in Luke chapter 24, and we won't turn there. Um, but it's the, the, the story of uh, the disciples that are walking uh, uh, on the Emmaus Road. And you might remember that story, that after the resurrection, um, uh, uh, no, after, yeah, after the crucifixion of Christ, some disciples are walking back, and they're, they're pretty um, discouraged by the events that have taken place. And uh, as they're walking along, Jesus comes along besides them. And now they've known Jesus for at least three years, and we think they would have known him, but they didn't know him. Uh, as he's walking with them, they didn't really know who he was. And so he's talking to them, he's, he's um, speaking to them, and uh, they get to the point where they're going to depart ways, and they say to him, well, why don't you come to our house and, and, and have a meal? And so Jesus comes to their house and he has a meal, and at the end of the meal, he breaks the bread, and it says at the moment that he broke the bread, it says, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. There was something that took place in their hearts And they all of a sudden realized that this was Jesus. And in fact, they said to one another, and I love this, it says, they they, they said to one another, did our hearts not burn? Now, it's not their emotions, but it's their intellects, it's their mind, it's the core of who they were. They knew something was not right, but they couldn't put their finger on it. So did not our our hearts burn within us while he talked to us along the way as he opened the scriptures to us? And then you look a little bit further in Luke 24, and there's two more openings there. Uh, there talks about that, that he opened the scriptures to them so that they could understand, and he opened the eyes of their mind so that they could understand. So we need to have the eyes of our hearts opened to see sometimes what is right before us. And, and we need God's help to do that. And as I was thinking about it, well, why do I need that? Why, why do we need to have our hearts open? Well, the first thing is that we all have difficulty, I think, discerning between the natural and the spiritual. We have difficulty discerning between the natural and the spiritual. We are so used to and comfortable living in the world that's known through our five senses. We, we have the sense of sight and of taste and of touch and of hearing and of smell. And we have, especially in the last 150 years, except for the last 20 years, where we've taken another major shift culturally, but they were the, sort of the years of the Enlightenment, years of empirical understanding uh, of science, where everything that could be uh, sensed with the five senses was knowledge, and it was our comfort zone, and it's what we lived in, and it's where we experienced life, and it's what we came to learn and trust the most. But the problem is, is that the natural is not all that there is. That there is also a spiritual reality. There is a spiritual realm. And those who aren't Christians might define it sometimes as a sixth sense. Uh, It's an intuitive awareness that there is more than meets the eye. That there is more than what the senses can pick up. That there is something that is unseen. There's a spiritual reality. There's a spiritual world out there. And so... We have those that are hypnotists or those that are um, in the fringes of astrology or into a cult that they are aware that there is some, something spiritual that's beyond the natural. And the Bible would affirm this. 
The Bible tells us that there is a whole spiritual realm that is uh, um, uh, amongst um, the natural realm in which we live. And so we need to have our eyes opened so that we can understand that there is this natural and spiritual and, and understand what's going on in those two things. I was thinking of this in a number of different ways, and, and there's any number of Scripture verses, but one that just uh, is very clear and points it out is uh, in chapter 12 of uh, verse 6 in Ephesians. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That in itself should be enough to remind us that there is this whole realm of spiritual reality that we can't see with the physical eyes. And so we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we might be able to see that. Some other things that... um, that struck me on this as I was uh, going through the scriptures in my head. Um, one of them was in, in the book of Zechariah chapter 3. And this maybe has more meaning to me than it does to you, particularly as I get up and preach every Sunday. But I'm sure some of you have experienced this. And it's, uh, it's a vision that uh, uh, it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. It is so frequent for me that as I stand before you week after week that I am so aware of a voice that speaks into my head. What are you doing there? Why don't you sit down? What do you have to speak to these people? There's a spiritual battle that I face every time I get up here on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening. There's a spiritual reality that I am aware of. I was reading uh, uh, my, my eldest son did uh, Mother's Day dinner and so I uh, pulled off the shelf while he was cooking up dinner a, a, a book, a biography of my grandfather, who was a pioneer missionary in Tibet, um, went there in 1908 and stayed there for 40 years. And uh, he was aware of the spiritual battle that took place amongst those people. Like, we just are not aware. And the book begins by describing a scene of going into a forest, and all the main sorcerers are gathered together there. And the main sorcerer of the bunch is there, and they're calling up the prince of hell. And there's a visual um, recognition of this prince of hell. And so there's this recognition, there's this reality that there's this whole spiritual world that exists beside and amongst um, the natural world. And one other passage I was thinking about, somebody actually pointed this out to me in 1 Samuel, um, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3. Uh, where, where Samuel is just new to the house of the Lord and he's uh, been taken in by Eli and uh, there's a voice that speaks to him. And uh, finally, it comes in verse 7 and it says now, and, and, and he didn't understand this voice. He didn't know where the voice was coming from. And then uh, it says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word that the Lord had been revealed to him. He had heard this voice three times, but he didn't discern it. He didn't know where it was from. He wondered if Eli had been calling him. And it's because he hadn't yet had the eyes of his heart opened to see the, the spiritual realm that existed besides, beside the physical or the natural realm. There's so many other passages of Scripture that we could look to that sort of affirm that. But we need the eyes of our hearts opened so that we can begin to discern between the natural and the spiritual realms in which we live in and operate. Why else might he pray that we might have the eyes of our hearts enlightened? Well, this is similar to the first, but it's different. We are not very good at differentiating between the visible and the invisible. We're not very good at differentiating between the visible and the invisible. 
There was a man about, uh, who lived about 2,700 years ago, and his name was Elisha. And there was a foreign king who really didn't like him because he kept revealing the, 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 to, to his own king that this foreign king was after him. And so he would just tell him, oh, you better move now. The king's coming for you. Or you better move now because the king's coming for you. And so the king of Syria could never catch him. And so he was really ticked at Elisha. And so he, says, he said to his guys, well, what's going on here? And they said, well, there's this prophet in, in Israel. And he keeps telling um, this king that you're after him. And so he says, we got to get Elisha. And so it says, uh, one night the king sent his army by night to surround the city in which Elisha, Elisha lived. And early in the morning, uh, Elisha got up one day and went for a walk on the wall and he saw this huge army that was sent by the Syrian king surrounding the city. It said that a great army had come in the night with horses and chariots and was surrounding the city. Fascinating thing was Elisha wasn't bothered much by it. I would be bothered by that. If I stood out in my little deck in the backyard and all of a sudden realized that there was 30 or 40 people with all sorts of weapons to get me, I'd be worried about that. But Elijah wasn't much worried about it. But his servant was. His servant was really distressed. And his servant says to him, well, what shall we do? And Elijah said to him, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more, more than those who are with them. You think, okay, what's, you know, what was in Elisha's coffee this morning? Here there was too much caffeine. And you know, his servant was, I'm sure, wondering, well, what do you see in Elisha that I don't see? Then Elijah prayed. And listen to what Elisha prays. Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of the horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That in the visible world, there was this whole invisible army of God that was greater and more powerful that was protecting Elisha. Sometimes we need the eyes of our hearts open so that we might see the invisible world that is around us. I was thinking more of these. Moses was called by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, what a huge task, and how did he do it? What, what kept him going? It says, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He had a glimpse of God. He had a glimpse of the character of God. He had an understanding that behind what he saw in the Egyptian army and the Egyptian horse was the God of gods and the Lord of lords and the King of kings that was going before him. There's another, we read in Colossians that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Get that one. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. So again, we have this reference to visible and invisible. And also this word about Jesus that he was the image of the invisible God. And we see that. What, what do men see so often and women see when they talk about Jesus? Well, they see a good man. They see a prophet. They see a, you know, a, a, a historical figure. But that's all that they see. 
They don't see beyond that. All they see is the flesh and bones of Jesus. And one day, Jesus was walking with his disciples, and they came to a certain city. And uh, as they, 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 they kind of were a little bit on the outskirts, and Jesus said to them, separate from the crowds, he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, who, what are people saying about me? So they said to him, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others, Jeremiah. Uh, one of the prophets. See, they were all saying the thing that most people today say. He was flesh and blood. Oh, he's a prophet. He's this. He's that. Um, he, he's just a man. But then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And I think this is one of the top two or three questions that we can ever ask and then search out the answer. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is. It is so important that you wrestle with that question, that you wrestle honestly, that you set aside your preconceived notions, that you set aside your hang-ups, and you, and you wrestle through the truth about who Jesus is. Because you, unless you come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is more than a man, unless you come to the conclusion about the truth of him, that he is the image of the invisible God, and that there is salvation under no other name, and that through Jesus, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by him. Unless you come to answer that question correctly, you will spend an eternity separated from God. And so it is the most, one of the most important questions you can ever ask yourself and then answer. And so he says to them, um, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, he said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. That's the right answer. But listen to what, what Jesus says to him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you see what's going on here? We need God, and that's why Paul prays to God that he would open the eyes of their heart. We need God to peel away all the barriers that we have um, that stop us from seeing the invisible from the visible, that stop us from wrestling with the spiritual and just living in the natural. We need the help of God in order to do that. And there's a third reason why I think we need this, and I, you know, I wrote this down, and this helps me. It may not help you, but I wrote this. We have unseen heart problems. We have unseen heart problems. Heart disease is a reality of which many of us are unaware. So much heart disease goes undetected in a natural sense. Well, the same is true of our spiritual hearts. The same is true of the heart that Paul is talking about here. In one place, Jesus says, for this people's heart has grown dull. He's saying that there's an insensitivity that has crept in. It no longer hears. It no longer perceives. It, 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 it no longer is alert to, to the things that are being said, to the realities that are around it. In another place, Jeremiah says, but this people has a stubborn and a rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. Stubborn and rebellious. What does that look like? Well, you know what it looks like if you've had children. 
You've seen the stubbornness. They don't want to listen. They don't want to do what you say. You tell them to do this. They do that. You tell them to go here. They go there. You tell them to be quiet. They're loud. You tell them to be loud. They're quiet. There's this stubbornness. There's rebellion that's built up in their little hearts. Well, I have news for you. We have stubborn and rebellious hearts. We don't want to listen to what God tells us to do. Another place, it says, it, it says that our hearts are hard and impenitent. And probably the passage of all passages about the heart is Jeremiah 17, 9, where it says that the heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? You see, our hearts have been impacted by sin. Our hearts grow dull. Our hearts are full of stubbornness and rebellion. We have blind spots. We have dull spots. We have have insensitivity there. We're prone to a hardness of heart. As we sang this morning, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I don't think that's just me. Well, I won't speak for you. But that's how I feel so often. My, My rebellious, insensitive heart. And so... What I need is I need God's help to soften that heart, to root out the rebellion, to bring sensitivity where insensitivity has crept in so that he might open the eyes of my heart to see what he has for me. And so that's what I need. I don't know how Paul knew that, but he knew it. He knew that I needed a greater inclination to be aware of the invisible that's around the visible. He knew that I need a greater awareness of the spiritual when I'm so overtaken by the natural. He knew that I needed to have heart surgery done by the Spirit of God so that I could perceive the things that God has said. And that's why it's, I repeat it almost every Sunday, and I mean it with all of my heart when I pray before we preach. Open our hearts, Lord, so that we might see wonderful things in your word. We need God to perform heart surgery every single time we come before his word. And he says this then, so that you may know. And I like that. I like this, the personal nature of that, so that you may know. Um, And that you may know not just sort of knowledge, but that you may know experientially these great things of God. And the first thing that he says uh, to us Uh, He says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. I labeled that the fuel of endurance. The fuel of endurance, that he might know the hope to which you have been called. You know, the Bible says that we have been called to be a number of things. We have been called to be saints. We are called to belong to Jesus. We're called to be justified. We're called to salvation. We're called to be sons and daughters of the living God. We're called to freedom. We're called to be holy. We're called out of darkness into light. But what Paul prays for here is that the eyes of our hearts might be open so that we might know what is the hope to which we have been called. On one level, I think this is one of the most important things that we can figure out about life. Below this facade in our world of got it all together, I've got the world by the tail, is a despair, is a hopelessness, is a fear. 
You, you can see it as you look across Europe as the financial crisis seems to be spreading in greater ways and, and people are beginning to panic and people are beginning to lose hope. They're losing hope in their savings. They're losing hope in their governments. They're losing, losing hope in the euro. They're, they're, there's this despair that you can see rising and bubbling to the surface. You see the same thing down in, in, in the States um, after that oil spill and, and the potential devastation that's going to bring to, to ways, whole ways of life and economy. And you begin to see the despair that is just under the surface of those people's lives. And so everywhere in the world, I think we see this, this undercurrent of hopelessness and despair. And it seems to be gaining strength. And Paul will say that, uh, uh, that as he paints a, a picture of what it is like to be outside of the family of God, to be not a son and daughter of God, he paints this picture and he ends with this final stroke of his brush when he says that they are having no hope and without God in this world. Wow. That is such a desperate place to be. And yet, you know that that very hopelessness is one of the greatest opportunities that you and I have to share the good news of the gospel with other people. It's that very um, hopelessness that bubbles up in people's lives that gives us an opportunity to speak gently into their lives. When the world has fallen out um, around them, and we live in the same world, but so often there's a difference between the serenity and the peace that Christians have versus those who live in panic and despair and Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, uh, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. For the very reason alone that we might know the hope of, uh, to which we've been called, that will make us better witnesses. Because our life will be different in the midst of difficult circumstances. And I was thinking of this, and songs always come into my head, and I spare you the grief most often of not sharing them with you. But one of the songs that came to my head this last week was that song, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. Well, I changed the word. And I was singing quietly in my study, and I don't need to sing quietly because nobody's around, but what I was singing was what the world needs now is hope, sweet hope. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is hope, sweet hope. No, not just for some, but for everyone. So we need to come to understand the hope to which we have been called so that we can offer that gift to those around us. I think though he also prays that from a different perspective. Um, I think he prays that to the saints themselves. I, I struggle um, day to day. Some days are better than others, but I realize that I am in a battle, and uh, it's a battle of temptation. It's a battle to, to, to be righteous rather than wicked. It's filled with little squirmishes. It's filled with big squirmishes. Um, it's hostilities outside of me. It's hostilities within me, and there are some days when the day is not very old when I begin to just long for heaven. I begin to long for that time when I no longer have those struggles where I no longer have a problem to deal with, where I no longer have a temptation to stand against, where, where I have realized the hope to which I have been called. Galatians 5, 5 says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. 
Has that been your hope this past week? Eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. Eagerly waiting for that day you are made perfect. Eagerly waiting for that day you will no longer live with despair. Eagerly waiting for that day you will no longer fail in the face of temptation. Eagerly wait for that day where you will be no longer bombarded by difficulties that you have to deal with. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. I said to the first service, and I'll say it again to hear, um, this is one of those times, and I, just, I say it sort of in jest, but that I, I would, I'd, I'd like God to give me eyes to see the invisible and to see how many of you this morning put on your helmet of the hope of salvation and to kind of look out here and see who's wearing this helmet and who's not. But it's a way of simply saying that one of the things that God tells us to do is that this hope ought to um, protect us from all manner of thoughts and discouragements and bombardments that come our way, this, 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 this helmet of the hope of salvation, that it is sure, it is certain, it will happen, it is going to come. And it's this helmet that protects me from all the lies and the onslaughts that come against me. I was thinking too in another way, so not only do we need this to understand more the hope to which we've been called so that we might... Um, look ahead to the perfection that is waiting for us. But as a church family, we've been faced with far too much grief this last number of months. And uh, your heart gets tired. um, And you grieve for the people who have lost loved ones. But when Christ is in the picture, there is hope, is there not? Isn't it the hope of the gospel that sustains us during these times? Titus 3, 4, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Loved ones, that is what comforts us in grief. It's the hope of eternal life. It's to know that, that, that we will see that person again. It's to know that there's an end to, to our separation, to know that the pain that we feel that we might carry with us for the rest of our lives will one day be erased and dealt with because we will see our loved ones face to face again in heaven if they've died in the Lord and we are in the Lord. And so there's this amazing, the hope of our calling. I think it helps a congregation like ours right now to, to endure through times of grief and sadness and sorrow. But there is coming a resurrection. There is coming a reunion. There is coming a celebration when we are going to get to see all of our loved ones and friends that have gone ahead of us. And then finally, on this, as we think about hope, you do know that hope is not just wishful thinking, right? But hope is the assurance of the reality of what we have not yet fully experienced. It assures us that, that we will not be disappointed and Again, why is this hope necessary? Well, as I've been reflecting on this again a little bit, how we live um, um, for Christ now is in a large measure determined by how we think about the future. Did you know that? That how you think about the future will impact how you live today. Now, we could draw all kinds of illustrations about this, but I'll I'll avoid that and just kind of look at the illustration of righteousness or the illustration of right living. 
That the way we look to the future transforms the way that we live in the present. For example, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. And we've looked at this passage a few times um, uh, over the course of the years, but we'll look at it again. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And then this, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you know that looking ahead to the return of Christ has the immediate impact of beginning to purify you now? Your hope of the future impacts your life in the present. What about 2 Peter? Again, another passage that we've looked at. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 uh, or 10, we'll start it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Again, that's speaking about the return of our Lord and Savior. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Live lives in holiness and godliness. There it is again. What we think about in the future will impact the way that we live in the present. If we've got our minds um, set on the hope to which we've been called, the hope which is the return of Jesus Christ, the hope is, which is the resurrection of the body, if we've got our minds fixed on those things, it will impact the way that we live our lives here on earth. I wonder sometimes if we have lost the practical implications of the hope of the gospel. It's not just something for way ahead of us. It's not just something for when we die. It's something for today. It's something for this very minute. It's something that will impact us this week. When we see the future clearly, we will live faithfully in the presence. When our hearts are open to the hope to which we have been called, we will live differently. And so so Paul prays for this congregation that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened so that they might know about the hope to which they've been called.